Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. This is the Christmas edition and they've tinseled up the studio. They've given me the baubles and the tree. I feel like I'm in Santa's grotto. And it's the Northern Business Podcast almost as usual. Each week we've been talking this year to people active in business and the economy about the big issues driving growth in the north of England. We're sponsored by Virtue Motors, which is one of the largest UK motor retailers. And you can check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb, owner of Recognition PR. We help scores of businesses promote their products and services, and some are featured on our podcasts. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. In the studio today, a little later in the programme, we have Margaret Bradshaw, Chief Buttoneer at Red Button Marketing. And down the line, to start the programme, we have two people from Make UK in different capacities. Andy Butt, who is Head of Business Development and Commercial for Reliance Precision, and James Broom, Senior Economist at Make UK. Now, Andy, as well as being uh, in charge of uh, business development at Reliance Precision, which is in West Yorkshire, is also the chair of Make UK Defence, which is a separate division of, of Make UK. But we're going to start with you, James. Uh, you're the Chief uh, Senior Economist at uh, Make UK. And this week before Christmas, uh, we've had a few bits of economic data. Uh, house prices, uh, we've had a little bit of a fall in house prices announced. Uh, uh, down by 1.2% in the 12 months to October. But in the northeast of England, uh, they actually went up a bit, which was a surprise. But every other region of the country, including Yorkshire and the northwest, they went down. But then the other big bit of data was inflation, which uh, surprised city analysts because it came in at 3.9% rather than just over 4%. So there's a bit of background for the economy this week. You're an economist. You look at these things. Were any of these uh, indicators a surprise to you? Well, well, good evening, and it's it's rare for for you know an economist to want to gloat because our own data uh, in a report we published on Monday might suggest uh, that we were slightly off the mark last quarter. But it's something that that we at the analyst HQ at Make UK have been expecting. We've definitely been on the downside for inflation, so we think uh, this, particularly through our lens for the uh, manufacturing economy, um, we see the these elevated base rates. Um, really driving down activity in the sector. It's what's really uh, scuppered our forecast for the third and fourth quarter of this year, and is frankly is what generated is what has generated such a uh, such a pedestrian forecast for 2024, which is currently standing at 0.1 percent in terms of value growth within the manufacturing sector for 2024. Right, and saying that already in 2023 isn't isn't a very merry Christmas, I'm aware. Uh, but a lot of this we're putting down to that expected sustained high. Uh, base rate environment. Now, indeed, as you mentioned, the, the data is coming out that the inflation is dropping faster than expected. And so, indeed, the, the likelihood of a base rate adjustment is being brought forwards. Uh, however, we all know that when that does come, it's going to be very, very, very subtle and delicate. And of course, there's a sort of a common sense view among economists and people who are active in business that if you've got inflation under control and the Bank of England's job is to control inflation, then they logically should uh, ease up on the interest rates. But then you've got the narrative from the Bank of England say, well, yes, I know it's going very well, but really our target's 2% and we're not going to go off the pedal until 2% is achieved. So there's a bit of a, 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 a dual narrative going on from equally credible and authoritative sources. Uh, exactly. What they'll really be watching uh, is wage wage changes, especially over the coming months. Uh, one of the bank's biggest fears, uh, the Monetary Policy Committee, when they really think about what they're going to do with the rate, they're going to think about how much people are getting paid in the economy. 
right? And so they're worried about that that oh so overused term baking in inflation. Mm. Uh, as as understandably, people will have suffered, you know, in real terms in many cases, effectively wage cuts over the year with the inflation rates over the past twelve to eighteen months. And so to see where that what they should do with rates, they'll be really looking at as we move into the first quarter, first quarter, first half of 2024, has that cycle of wage increases that the, those extraordinary wage increases come to a close? If so, that might signal a time where it might be safe for them to start bringing down the rate. If not, uh, they might hazard a little longer still. It is interesting, isn't it, James, that regardless of what the bank is saying about rates are going to stay this high for longer, the long-term market for interest rates, if you were going to take out a mortgage now over two years or over five years, those rates have come down. It's as though the market is speaking more than the analysts. True. There's there's two two things happening there. One of them is which, particularly when we talk about rates, we, you know, we're often referring to the mortgage market activity. Uh, volumes have been down so awfully over the past year that banks are actually now competing for business by, by placing rates sometimes below the base rate. Uh, for exactly these reasons, that the mortgage business is seeing such a cut in activity compared to whence it what was maybe pre-pandemic to talk of such a, a long ago thing. Um, really, when what we're seeing is that the economy, the sector, and indeed the bank itself, pretty much every player and every agent in this economy is aware that rates are going to go one way. It's a question of when. Uh, it will be a very, very surprising cold day uh, where we see rates climb back up again from the position we're in. And because of that, that's why the the long-term financial products and uh, and the banks are able to offer uh, these sorts of guarantees over the long term because everyone is pretty much 99% sure it's coming down. It's going to come way down. The question is, is this going to happen within a year or over the next five? That's what's unknown and that's what's causing a little bit of uncertainty around when we can expect to get back to higher levels of economic activity within the sector. Right at the beginning of these comments, you said that wage growth, uh, wage uh, growth and the inflation in the wage uh, um, market is one of the key determinants. It's what the Bank of England is watching. One man's wage rise is another man's job loss, as the old 1970s slogan went. But it's difficult to control wage growth when there is a tight labour market. And when it comes to your members, many of which require skills, that tight labour market ain't abating, is it? That's exactly right. And and something that's somewhat, I think it's fair to say at this point, become systemic since the pandemic is the average level of demand uh, for workers in the sector. And we'll we'll just look at uh, vacancy rates within the manufacturing sector in the UK to proxy that. Now, um, they're currently at around 69,000, 70,000, but that doesn't mean much in them. So you look at it as a ratio. So per 100 employed, it's currently at 2.9 jobs vacant for every 100 uh, workers employed in the UK's manufacturing sector. Now, that long run average, if we look back uh, pre-2021, right the way back 30 years, is 1.8. Uh, it peaked at four in the post-pandemic. Um, but what it means now is we're really in a position where it's effectively the demand for labour within the sector is 50% higher than that long run average. And that doesn't seem to be abating. So, you know, the questions of the missing million and, and all those sorts of conversations about unemployment hasn't really gone up, but those economically inactive, which are very hard to track, have gone up. And what this, this has caused is the sector is in a sort of new, a new normal in terms of the level of demand for labour and where it's finding it short. The market's not supplying that sufficient amount of labour, which from a separate angle is also driving up price competition uh, in the labour market in terms of wages. OK, well, we've gone into some detail now, which I'm very welcome, but I, I just want to very much welcome. But I just want to tell our audience that uh, 
I, I mentioned the key economic data that was published this week from the government, but the, your report also must count as key economic data because it's your quarter four report, Manufacturing Outlook, if you want to see it online. Uh, I'm holding up for our viewers a, a picture of it. There's PDF available. I have uh, looked at some of the key findings. I, I just uh, pull pull out. There is, it isn't all doom and gloom. I've just highlighted some just uh, so we can, we can get to it. Um, export orders growth. Uh, now that might be because we got a weak domestic market, but export orders were, were were on the way up, and there is an expectation among your members that order books will grow. Rightly, rightly so, and and, and well observed, and it's something that we've uh, struggled with uh, last quarter. So as part of this data, we take a very um, candid view. So we have our own forecast, which we calculate, um, you know, here at Make HQ. A make UK uh, HQ, and then, but also we we elicit data from the sector itself, and and don't uh, touch it uh, about future quarter intentions. And so, I think the most important finding about uh, you know not being too doom and gloom is that the confidence metric uh, remains roundly unfussed, despite some short term negativity in some metrics, such as uh, such as uh, orders in the short term. So, what this what this shows us is that you know there, there's certainly not a tidal wave of uh, Fear coming in the first quarter, second quarter of, of, of the year. What there has been is some short-term movements, some short-term movements over the past quarter that have been uh, unexpected. And indeed, one of those is output uh, has significantly come up above what we had expected in the third quarter. A lot of this is to do with um, surprise supply chain easements, allowing a lot of value to be unlocked out of uh, warehouses. Um, but of course, that's a short-term thing. And indeed, that's that's you know reflected in the confidence figure, which hasn't necessarily jumped up significantly, but also hasn't come down. And UK manufacturers' business confidence is firmly in positive territory. Now, it hasn't really improved on last quarter, um, but it is it is at approximately 6.5, which is our diffusion index, and that's above five is positive. And so we're going into the next year with a roundly positive confidence figure, despite uh, an output forecast that is that is pretty much flat. So we'll, we'll just grab that bit of information. So a, a bit of data that's above five is positive. Correct. In this in this index, the way we measure in your it. Yeah. Index. Now, I'm going to flash up on the screen. You've done this nationally. You've broken it down into governmental regions. And we look at the northern regions because it's the northern business podcast. And I just quickly canter through uh, the northern regions. In the northeast of England, it's a, a positive. It's 6.8. Uh, it's up as far as output. It's up as, in, as far as employment. It's down a bit on investment in the northeast. In Yorkshire and Humberside, it's up on all, all indices. It's up on all output. It's up on employment, and it's up on investment. Not so good in the northwest. Um, the May UK Manufacturers Index suggests down as far as output, down on employment, down on investment, but confidence still high. Six point two percent confidence in the northwest. Six point nine percent in the north in Yorkshire, and six point eight percent in the northeast. Now, is this? typical of the country or can i which all we, we always like to say on the northern business podcast can we say the north of england is an outlier is it driving this well i think it's important to observe as, as, as you've correctly detailed that uh all uh both the northeast and uh yorkshire humberside are have above average um yeah, yeah, manufacturing economy confidence there um with the northwest slightly slightly beneath the average but still within positivity at 6.2 just beneath the uk average at 6.5 so um, what, we, what we're seeing here, particularly with the improvement in output and employment, is, is also a little bit um, due to poor figures last quarter. So it's up compared to last quarter. But what we saw last quarter was effectively a hiring freeze. 
uh, in ag on aggregate across the country. So um, our employment metric data suggested that there was very little employment growth. Um, and so looking at this quarter, we have seen a softening in that position. The businesses were in a bit of a scared position last quarter, particularly around uh, liquidity and cash flow moving into Q4. So this this created a bit of a hiring freeze activity. Um, so employment, employment performance has been up across this quarter, and we're seeing that in those northern regions as well. Um, output as well, as I, as I mentioned at the start, has jumped up after serious flattening last quarter. So that's reflected across um, those northern those northern northern areas as well. As you mentioned, investment is um, down uh, apart from in the Yorkshire and the Humber side. Um, the investment is, I think, is really the victim at the minute of that uh, heightened uh, base rate environment. Right, money's money's expensive. Mm -hmm. Money is a lot more expensive than it has been, or businesses have been used to perhaps for too long, been used to very very cheap money, and so now the risk of you know the, the the requirement to make sure that you get those returns on investment when you're making that multi-million pound investment uh, is ever so much more risky at the moment especially given the uncertainty as we've talked about on how long that in, uh, sustained base rate might go on for well james i've got to ask you to pause for a moment because i want to segue into one of your members and ask him a little bit about his business and that we might come back to you to close this session right at the end but do listen in uh, to andrew but andrew is a, a, one of the people who are running um, precision uh, engineering uh, company, and you're based in uh, Yorkshire, and it's Reliance Precision. Um, before we go into uh, the specific uh, area of Make UK you're involved with, in general, because your business is involved in lots of sectors, I, I should stress, uh, what did you make of those Yorkshire bits of data that, that you know, outputs up, employments up, and investments up? Is that reflected in your own firm, Andrew? Uh, I, I think it is, yes. Um, I, I think as a business, we're in a particularly fortunate position that we invest quite heavily uh, in an in-house uh, accredited training scheme for apprentices. So uh, at any one point in time, 10% of the entire workforce is going through that apprenticeship program. Um, so for us, we've got this in-house ability to feed in good quality resource uh, to, to support our business. Um, but overall, the order books are good. Next year is looking positive, um, and especially in the defence industry, noting that defence is one of several industries we supply into, uh, those order books are also looking particularly healthy. And you're a manufacturer of precision components, so it is at the... Uh, it's it's not metal bashing in your in your in your in your zone, but it is manufacturing at a a, a high um, uh, an intense end when it comes to skills yep. and so on. So the the need for those training just just quickly canter through the kind of sectors that your business supplies. Yeah, sure. So about a, a third of our output is for defence across a range of products. Um, about 40% of the business is in analytical devices and medical instruments. Uh, and then the remainder is a standard product business. Okay. Um, but within, within the world of machine components, um, we try to push the boundaries of what we think is technically achievable. Um, so taking, taking on board James's point about cash flow and the cost of capital at the moment, um, it's something certainly we look at. We, we invest very heavily, not just into the people, um, but also into the equipment in our kind of facilities um, and deciding when to spend that million pound check on a new piece of equipment is, is a key decision. Okay, now I'm going to ask you to, to, to put a different hat on now because in your um, non-business role, you are chairman of the body from Make UK that deals with defence. It's called Make UK Defence. It's a specific group. Uh, tell us about that grouping. 
Um, so Make UK Defence is a national organisation uh, and we represent the interests of the SME community. So that's the small to medium enterprise uh, businesses throughout the UK. So we do activities like pitching uh, at government or the MOD for policy change. Um, so that could be anything from the prompt payment code to ensure that the supply chain is paid within 30 days or less. Uh, it could be uh, pitching at the government to try and define what ESG requirements are rather than providing generic guidance. Um, and we also dovetail into the parent organisation, Make UK. Okay. And, and we'll pick up on two of, uh, at least one of those points uh, in a minute and what you're talking to the government about. Um, but it, it, I suppose you, you focus on SMEs because clearly the UK has a defence industry that's making aircraft and ships and so on, and they require a supply chain. If you're building a ship, you're going to need uh, fabricated uh, materials, you're going to need instrumentation, you're going to need uh, everything from uh, food supplies to uniforms. So there's a, a large element of supply chain needed to defend the country. There is, and, and actually, one of the one of the interesting trends we're seeing at the moment, and at least it's beginning to pick up pace, is a move towards either reshoring back to the UK or nearshoring uh, from product in the Far East towards Europe. Um, and I think I think a lot of that's being driven by the war in Ukraine and the need for greater sovereignty and controlled and therefore resilient around that, that supply okay. chain. I think the phrase is, I've heard is sovereign capability. We don't want to be reliant on uh, not necessarily uh, hostile foreign states, but even, you know, for argument, say, France or, or Germany or Holland, we want to be able to actually have the capacity to, to do it ourselves. Yeah, and, and I think I, I think that's very valid. Um, and if you look at some of the issues that have occurred to global supply chains over the last few years, there was the container shortage, which caused global disruption. There was the chip shortage, the electronic chip shortage that affected almost every manufacturing business. Um, we're seeing droughts. I think it's in the Suez Canal at the moment that's preventing the normal flow of traffic uh, through that trade route. Um, and then you've got hit hostilities in the Middle East with pirates targeting freight vessels. Yeah. So you know all, all these big global supply chains are, are, are put at risk or stress when unexpected issues and events occur. Um, and for something like defence, it's it's critical that you've got the ability to keep uh, supporting your your troops in any particular campaign. So um, the sovereign uh, capability is one element of you lobbying. Um, we were talking. You were talking just then about uh, Ukraine, um, and there's been some, I suppose, from the point of view of people like myself who support the uh, Ukrainian people's uh, uh, fight against Putin, um, some disappointments in international policy. The point of view that I may hold, and maybe you hold, isn't necessarily shared even by a lot of people in democratic countries. And and if you look at the UN, quite a large chunk of the UN actually sides with Russia on this. Yeah, there's the, the the disappointing is that the politics is is still playing its way out. Um, so not not to put too fine a point on it, but um, prosperity is only possible with security. So I'm I'm uh, shamelessly ripping that quote from from Sir Michael Fallon. 
But the point the point that he made at the time and the point I'll make here is even in times of economic pressure, um, like we've seen over the past few years with, with high inflation and high cost of living, um, well, you still need the defence budget to be able to secure your own borders. And I think we've been fortunate as a Western country for not having had direct threats against our country for at least the last 15, 20 years. Um, Ukraine has certainly started bringing that a little bit closer to home, um, but the need for increased defence spending is still definitely there. And it hasn't been possible th this week for the European community to get its aid package through, and it's also not been possible for the US Congress to get its aid package through, and Britain is almost an outlier in this respect because it's continuing to help Ukraine. The other um, two big economic powers will presumably sort it out, but it, it, it probably causing a lot of consternation among our Ukrainian allies. I'm, I'm sure it is. Um, and ultimately, any um, delay by the West in providing the funds and the arms and equipment needed to, to help support the war in Ukraine is going to be emboldening uh, Russia with its forces. Um, we we think generally that that Putin's probably playing a bit of a waiting game to see what happens in the in the American elections, um, but any any wavering by Western countries, you know, casting aside what's happening in America, and any wavering to spend the money that we've all committed to uh, to support this long term um, war in Ukraine is is advantageous to Putin. Um, and, and to put some of those figures in perspective. Um, so that the NATO minimum commitment is 2% of, of GDP, or at least that, that's the target. Um, the UK spends about 2.1-2.2% of GDP on defence, uh, and that puts us sixth highest. Um, so that, that straight away tells you the vast majority of NATO members are quite some way off uh, spending the, the, the minimum commitment. Um, and the US, for reference, spends about 3.6%. So, you know, the, the difference overall, the, yes, the US is a massive country and therefore at 3.6%, the amount is generating is huge. But actually, when you look at our 2.2, it's it's some way off where I, I, I think it should be. Before the podcast, it's 2.29 uh, now. So it's nearly 2.3, but there is a government policy, is there? Policy is there. To, to get it up, to and get I, get it. It, uh, I think it's 2.5, the government want. And I've had on this podcast lots of different organizations i had nursery schools on a few months ago we've had care home companies on and they all want government to spend money do you think 2.5 percent is going to take bread out of the mouths of those sectors or is it something that it is legitimate for defense supply chain to ask for um i'm not under any illusion that there's a magic money tree and that you can shake it and, and suddenly there's more the money the money will end up coming from somewhere um and um, I, I won't try and do James's job and answer where he thinks that money is best coming from or even Rishi Sunak's job. Um, but I, I, I kind of go back to the point of what happens if the war in Ukraine doesn't go successfully for the U Ukrainians, um, whether there's a stalemate and then Russia re-engages or whether, whether Russia manages to take further land in the near term. Uh, there's a general belief that this isn't the end of it. Um, and that Putin will continue targeting Eastern European countries uh, in order to rebuild the former USSR. 
and that's hugely destabilizing for the region. Um, and there's, if you just want to look at the monetary aspect of it, there's a direct cost of that. You only need to look at the cost of our electricity, gas, food, fertilizer, and heating bills over the past few years to know that there's been a direct result to our pockets. Mm. So my argument is not rob peter to pay paul my argument is if you don't do what's needed we're going to end up paying anyway i've got one last question and i'll flip back to james to finish this segment and that is about esg now this is with your make uk defense hat on you were saying that you often want to raise the issue of financial organizations uh requiring uh certain levels of environmental social and governance and sometimes ethics ethics come into this and you know the question about whether the armaments industry or the defense sector is an ethical investment now uh, i'm sure there'll be viewers that take a different view to me my own view is it's perfectly ethical to support sending missiles to support families that have been enduring an invasion from a hostile state but that's only my view when it comes down to other views being perpetrated upon you and your sector rather uh, by by banks where you need funding from that's a different kettle of fish isn't it uh, it is. It is. It's one of the the hot topics at the moment. We've had uh, members of Make UK Defence uh, have their funding, their, their bank funding, completely withdrawn at very short notice, and you can imagine the kind of disruption that that presents to those companies. Uh, there are other high street banks that have put limits on the amount of revenue uh, customers that they will support uh, can uh, gain. Um, from the defense industry. And again, that's limiting, in some instances, that's limiting the business's ability to grow and develop. Um, whilst others, especially some of the new startup banks, don't have those kind of policies. Um, so I, I, I think we're seeing a twofold issue. One, that there seems to be uh, a negative view about manufacturing and the defense industry generally, and two, such large variance between any particular uh, bank within that banking sector. All right. Well, look, thank you very much indeed. Uh, it was great to hear from you, Andy. I'm going to flip back to James and just ask him to summarize, summarize where, where he thinks we are. At this point on ESG and the governance of way money can be uh, paid by uh, banks, generally, uh, and not just banks, other financial institutions, pension funds and so on. Uh, it is becoming a, a debatable question, isn't it? Yes, um, and, and I think if I was to, to, to wrap up, I would say that despite despite perhaps not very exciting headline metric forecast, you know, I mentioned output and orders for, for and indeed general overall growth for, for the sector next year. I think what has been mentioned, which is the silver lining, which is in those investments, and particularly those energy efficiency investments, sustainability investments, do continue to be made, uh, perhaps driven initially by, we were talking about the, the war in Ukraine uh, and the subsequent huge uplift in energy prices that we saw. But still to this day, those energy efficiency investments are trickling through the sector. And of course, while in the short term, that is being driven by a cost basis, uh, by the sector trying rapidly to, to get its cost down, the long-term benefit for the sector of effectively having this transformative moment of the sudden increase in energy efficiency uh, over the past year and which will continue into the next year uh, bodes well for the long term, uh, particularly in terms of sustainability for the sector. So in terms of those investments getting a better footing, so despite 2024, uh, perhaps in the numbers game, not looking particularly exciting, uh, there, that doesn't mean to say there's not plenty of activity uh, setting the, se the sector setting itself up uh, for prosperity in the long run uh, in the 2025 and into the future.
Well, James, Andrew, thank you for coming on. Do come back. It's always great to have Mate UK on the programme. A double bubble today. And uh, uh, have a great new year. And let's see how it's going in the next quarter and see what your next report says. James, thank you. James, Andrew, uh, Mate UK. Uh, so um, we're going to round off our last programme of 2023 with a short interview now with Margaret Bradshaw. She's based in North East England. And she runs a small business called Red Button Marketing and Training which has devised a new kind of software, Digital Edge software, it's called. Ma Margaret, you're pioneering, you're innovating. It's only a small business. Tell us about the software. Yeah, OK. So the software is actually, um, it's My Marketing Button is the name of the software. And uh, we're really excited. We've just recently um, welcomed our first agency ambassador and they are Digital Edge. Right. Okay. Uh, so digital, I, I got, I got yeah. Like no, that's okay. Digital right. Edge are actually an incredible agency. They're based in Acliff, uh, run by Ian Proctor and Graham. Uh, not Graham Proctor, by the way. I just don't know his surname. <laughs> um, but no, they're a great team. And the software, My Marketing Button, um, what that is, is it's an online framework that gives SMEs, um, so startups, micro, small companies, a really great way to plan their marketing tasks. Because I think if we just kind of take a step back, and ask ourselves, it's really good to ask in a business this question, what is marketing? It's, um, it is a business process, but trying to get sort of the same page thinking around what it actually is can be challenging. So we decided we would like to make it visible. So you've and, broken it down on the screen for people. Yeah, so it's great and it's really motivational. I mean, this is also at the heart of everything we do through whether it's our, and we've got like that blended approach in our businesses that we've got the training element. Um, so we train in the process and then the technology, the software acts as a kind of that task manager for people to use um, after training or they can just go on and use the software. Now, the kind of people that would be uh, responsive to this training is, uh, I suppose, people who are newly into marketing posts. Well, yeah. And actually, interesting, we've just done a really big project in the Northeast and been involved with a number of companies and the interesting different roles that we've seen on the training. So it's people new to marketing roles or it's people involved in a business who are looking to have more responsibility to to get involved in the marketing process, but it's also business owners who actually would just really quite like um, a way to see this amazing process that kind of acts as a connector. Because we talk a lot about operations, we talk a lot about sales, and I think we all get that. But trying to define what marketing actually is and where it sits in the business can get a bit blurry at times. So we kind of wanted to call it out and make it clear. So let's get this right for the, the, the finish of the interview. It's called My Marketing, Marketing Button. Button. And your business is Red Button, Button Marketing. Marketing training. Button. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you're <laughs> training people in marketing and helping businesses yeah. to achieve marketing solutions. Absolutely. What we're training in, we're training in this marketing performance framework. We're training in what this framework looks like and how people can use it as a way to embed a marketing culture, a way to visualize what the marketing process looks like, because ultimately it's for people involved, whether they're internal or the external agencies, but everyone involved on that company's marketing process. So we've made it visible um, so people can see where they can impact. So we, our training is very much centered around what that visible process looks like, but how people can use their knowledge, their expertise, their insights in such a way to connect, and I'm using my hands here, but to connect and like stitch together that solid marketing function. She is 
for people listening on the podcast. <laughs> she was using her hands. I'm stitching. Listen, Margaret, it's been great having you on thank the last Thank you program. so much. Honestly, Have it's been lovely. You and you. Product, and thank you for joining Good us. tree, by the way, Graham. Thank oh, yes. you so much. Very good. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to join us as a guest in 2024 on the Northern Business Podcast, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to my podcast producer, Harry Sinclair, and my technical operator, uh, Robin Campbell. And join us next time on the Northern Business Podcast, which is in the first Wednesday of January. Never miss an episode. Like, rate and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. Happy New Year.